All right. <clears throat> I've got a little bit of a uh, cold today, so I will not shake your hand. I don't think I've shaken anyone's hand or shook, if that's the past tense of shake, uh, earlier. Uh, and so that's why. It's not because I don't love you. I, I would love to embrace you, but I also don't want you to, uh, to die. So I got a little cold this morning. Today we're talking about divorce and remarriage. Why are we talking about that? Because we're studying anthropology. We're studying the doctrine of humanity. And uh, something interesting about humans is that we get married. That's something that's important to humanity. Uh, And due to sin, there's also divorce and things like this. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, This is a controversial topic. It is a spicy topic. Uh, When we teach on things like the Trinity, most people are like, yeah, I agree with that. When you teach on divorce or something like that, though, people have their hot opinions and hot topics. Uh, And so if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. Uh, You just will not be able to persuade me otherwise. That's all this means, okay? So few things. First of all, I want to start with some words of uh, introduction. Uh, the first is this. If you're someone who's gone through a divorce, I just want you to know that there's grace, all right? There's a tendency on this topic to uh, sometimes treat it as a scarlet letter, as though if you're a divorced Christian, you're somehow a Christian with an asterisk or something like that. So I just want to say, in the gospel, there is forgiveness for all sins, past, present, and future. And so if you're somebody who's gone through this, and we talk about uh, times where divorce is sinful and these kind of things, please don't live under that shame and condemnation. But rather, if you've repented of that, walk in grace. Walk in the grace of the gospel. So I just want to offer an encouraging word uh, uh, on that. There's a tendency on the topic of divorce uh, to, to go on one end of the spectrum, to either where we feel like it's not really a big deal, it's just something a bunch of people do on one side of the spectrum, or to think that it's like blasphemy against the Spirit. It's some sort of unforgivable sin on the other. It's neither of those, all right? It's neither of those. And so we're going to talk about that today. Additionally, in talking to some of the other elders uh, last week and kind of where they landed, one of the things that one of them wanted uh, me to mention to you, I think was a good word, is this, that we always, always, always at Parkway want to uphold the sanctity of marriage. Okay? So even if there's a little bit of diversity on what views that we might hold uh, amongst the elders, the central thing that we're all standing on is the Word of God and wanting to uphold the sanctity of marriage, wanting to say that this is something where even though there at times might be grounds for divorce, we're typically going to counsel and encourage you to stay married anyway. Okay? So let me say it stronger. If you go into marriage looking for a way out, you will almost certainly find it. You will find a text to be able to twist to get out of that thing you want to get out of. But if you go into marriage saying, I'm going to be in this, Regardless, that's a better posture to take in going into marriage. All right? Everybody with me? Okay. Let's talk about a lot of fun things. And by fun, I mean awful. Okay. First thing you need to know is ultimately divorce happens because of the brokenness of human sin. Okay? Had there been no fall, there would be no divorce. All right? There would be no death. All right? So you wouldn't have to talk about remarriage either. And so there's a sense in which uh, divorce and remarriage only come as a result of the fall. And so ultimately, we have to realize we live in a broken world, and that's why we're having to deal with these things. Now, before we get into what the Bible is going to talk about on this issue, I want to let you know where church history has stood on the issue of divorce and remarriage, okay? I think that there's wisdom in seeing what other Christians who have the Spirit who read the Bible think about this issue. That's part of interpreting the Bible within community. When we say interpret the Bible within community, we don't just mean within your community group, although we love that too. What we mean is also the larger Christian community? What have thousands of years of Christians thought about this issue as they've read the same Bible? Okay, So let's go over what church history has thought about on the issue of divorce and remarriage. The early church, all right? The early church. Uh, so this is, you know, patristic era. This is from zero to 500, 700 AD. The early church allowed for divorce in the cases of adultery, but typically did not allow for remarriage. Okay? So in the early church, typically they would allow for divorce in the case of actual physical adultery, 
but they would typically not allow for remarriage. Now, what's interesting is they had a strange view of remarriage because they wouldn't a lot of times allow you to get remarried even if your spouse had died. Okay, there was this idea that if you're united to one person, now, in some sense, that's great because their thinking is if you're united to one person, you don't get to be united to another person. Uh, And so the problem with that, though, is they go beyond the Scriptures and that they wouldn't a lot of times even allow for somebody to get remarried even if their spouse had died, despite the fact that the Bible will specifically say that when your spouse dies that you can get remarried, okay? Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so what did the early church believe about divorce? Was it allowable in the case of adultery? Yes. Was it allowable for anything else, basically? It was not. Did they allow remarriage? They did not, okay? Now, let's talk about the Roman Catholic Church. I'm going to sip some water, not for dramatic effect, which I sometimes do, but just because of the cold. So, hold on. I should have waited till I had a really good point and then had the water. The Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view is that marriage is a sacrament, okay, is a sacrament. Within Protestantism, we have two sacraments, two ordinances, baptism and communion. Within Roman Catholicism, there are seven sacraments, okay, extreme unction, marriage, holy orders, penance, the partaking of the Eucharist and Mass, baptism, and I'm forgetting one, uh, your, uh, what's it called, your, uh, don't tell me, don't tell me, it's uh, your confirmation, is that it? Is that the seventh one? I can't remember. I used to know it. I just did that off the top of my head. Anyway, they have seven sacraments, and they think of marriage as a sacrament, okay? So in Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church does not believe in divorce because they think it's a sacrament. So in the same way that you can't be unbaptized, you can't be divorced, in their thinking. So the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages held that marriage, and still today holds that marriage, is a sacrament like baptism, and that divorce and remarriage in that case, therefore, was not permitted, okay? Now, here's what the Roman Catholic Church does today. This is interesting. The Roman Catholic Church, because they don't recognize divorce, they have a board that will allow you to have your marriage annulled. So it's the same thing. They've just given it a different name, okay? By the way, let me just say something about philosophy of language for a second. If you change the name of something, but don't change the content, that is not a real change. A lot of people don't understand how language works. There's a lot of churches, even within the SBC, who will have uh, uh, females that are ministering and pastoring over men, and you say, well, you have female elders, and they say, well, no, we don't call them elders. We call them ministers, or we call them something else. Same thing. I don't care what you call them. I'm concerned about the content, okay? And so what the Roman Catholic Church will do, they will not allow you to get divorced, but they will allow you to have your marriage annulled, which is a huge problem. Because if your marriage is annulled, you're saying there was never really a marriage, so you've just been living in fornication with your spouse for the last 20 years or whatever it is. But that's where the Roman Catholic Church stood. But the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages would allow for divorce typically for adultery, but they would not allow for remarriage. And then later on, they made it to where they don't allow for divorce at all, but you can have your marriage annulled in the case of adultery or something like that, okay? Ironically, there are people in the Middle Ages that taught that if you married a non-Christian, that was considered quote-unquote spiritual adultery, and sometimes divorce was allowed. Now, this is a big deal. Who who knows who King Henry VIII is? Who's King Henry VIII? Someone just go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the pattern, but yeah, he had a bunch of wives. He wanted a male heir, uh, and uh, his wives were not able to produce a male heir, and so he'd have them beheaded for treason, right? Because if you don't produce a male heir for the son, you've clearly, you clearly hate England. And, uh, and so he'd have them beheaded and these kind of things. And uh, why did he eventually break off from the Roman Catholic Church? 
because he wanted a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, but the church wouldn't grant it because the Roman Catholic Church didn't allow for divorce, and you got the start of Anglicanism and what's sometimes called in the United States Episcopalianism. Why am I not an Anglican, although I like a lot of Anglicans? Because I just have a theory that is, don't follow any denomination that starts with me just trying to get out of getting divorced from my spouse, okay? All right. So that is the, uh, the Roman Catholic view. So early church allows for divorce in the case of adultery, doesn't allow for remarriage. Medieval church allows for divorce in the case of adultery or annulment, but somehow they do allow you to get out of the marriage, but don't typically allow for remarriage in the Middle Ages. Now, in Protestantism, you now got something, and this is my view, the Protestant view, the Protestantism generally allowed for divorces in the cases of two things, adultery and desertion, okay? Actual physical adultery and actual physical abandonment. That's typically where the Reformers landed, guys like Luther and Calvin, okay? I'm going to talk about that more later. Ulrich Zwingli, the third man of the Reformation, he had a different view. He, allowed, he thought that adultery was just one example for allowance of divorce, but others could follow. So his view was Jesus is just talking about adultery, but Jesus is just giving an example. There are other things that you could be allowed to get divorced for that Jesus doesn't mention. Okay, that's Zwingli's view. I have a problem with that because Jesus says, for any other reason except for this, okay? But that's Zwingli's view. Another reformer, a guy named Martin Booster, he's the first one that we know of in history that allowed for divorce by mutual consent, that allowed for divorce simply by mutual consent, not because of actual adultery or something like that. His reasoning was that Paul's reasoning is that uh, you're to live at peace with one another. So if you can't live at peace with one another in 1 Corinthians 7, you should get divorced. The Puritans, what did the Puritans allow? The Puritans allowed for divorce for adultery. Uh, In Rhode Island, they also allowed for divorce in the case of desertion and impotence, all right, and impotence. Last week when we talked about marriage, we talked about how marriage includes covenant and consummation. And so their thinking was if there could not be consummation, if there could not be continued consummation, then there was an allowance for divorce. Now, again, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what the text thinks. I'm just, I'm giving you church history. When I talk about church history, I don't have to defend anything because I'm just telling you what other people believe, all right? That's easy. I can say they believe that. I don't have to say if it's right or wrong or good. That's the benefit of being a church historian, okay? Uh, and that's, so that's where the Puritans were. So just to summarize, early church and medieval church allow for divorce in the case of adultery, but don't allow for remarriage. The Protestant church allows for divorce in the cases of adultery and physical abandonment and does allow for remarriage in those two instances, in those two instances. But here's the big thing that the Reformation did. The Reformation made marriage and divorce more of a civil issue than an ecclesiastical issue, meaning more of a state issue than a church issue. That's one of the big contributions of the Reformation is actually how the Bible lines up between church and state. Everybody with me so far? That's church history. Is church history right? A lot of times. Is church history wrong? Sometimes. Just keep that in mind, okay? Just keep that in mind. Now, let's get into the Old Testament, and then we'll get into the New Testament, okay? First, in the Old Testament, I want you to know this. Both frivolous divorce and adultery are condemned in the Old Testament, okay? Both frivolous divorce and adultery are condemned in the Old Testament. Let me read you a few passages. Malachi 2.16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Here Malachi is rebuking those who leave the wife of their youth uh, and talks about how that uh, takes God's curse, in a sense, uh, upon them, okay? So frivolous divorce, always bad, all right? Frivolous divorce, always bad in the Old Testament. Adultery, always bad in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Notice here that adultery is a consensual thing in that sense. 
Okay, this is not talking about cases of forced rape or something like this. This is talking about uh, adultery, and the penalty is the death penalty. All right, the penalty for this in the Old Testament is the death penalty. Again, if you have gone through a divorce or you have committed adultery, there is grace for you in Christ. We are not going to stone you. Amen. How good is it to live in the new covenant? Okay. Now, so let's talk about, the, there isn't one allowance for divorce that's mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, or one passage that, extra, that, that deals with at length divorce in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I want to read this to you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found, quote, some indecency in her, we'll talk about that in a second, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, several things I want you to see here. First of all, the text is allowing for the case of divorce. Jesus will go on to say that the reason that's allowed is because of their hardness of hearts. Okay, so again, this is not ideal. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament that God kind of puts up with for a season that he eventually does away with in the New Testament. Things like polygamy, things like uh, divorce, etc., you know, frivolous divorce, whatever it might be. Uh, and so that's what you have here. So the first thing you need to see is that uh, there are cases in the Old Testament where you can give your spouse a certificate of divorce. Why do you give them a certificate of divorce? That's actually an act of grace so that they can go get remarried. Okay? If you're a single guy and a girl comes up to you and she's like, let's get married. And you're like, weren't you previously married? She's like, yeah, but my husband divorced me. How do you know that she's not trying to commit adultery? How do you know she's not trying to seduce you? You don't know. So what would happen is if her husband divorced her, he would have to give her a certificate of divorce. That way she could show you. How do I know you're not cheating on your husband? Because he's no longer my husband. Okay? Because he's no longer my husband. So that's the idea of giving a certificate of divorce. Additionally, again in this text, like we talked about last week with uh, covenant and consummation, additionally, if your spouse in the Old Testament leaves you and marries someone else, they cannot come back to you. Okay? They cannot come back to you. You go back to your most recent spouse. Okay? You go back to your most recent spouse. You don't go back to your other spouse once you've been married to somebody else. Why? Because in the Bible, again, this is really important, in the Bible, when there is consummation of a marriage, it creates a new one flesh union. And when there's a new one flesh union, it severs previous one flesh unions. Okay? It severs previous one flesh unions. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Good? I know this is a lot of fun. So much fun just to talk about getting stoned. By that, I mean pelted with rocks and talking about adultery and all these kind of things. I know this is a difficult topic. So here's my question for you. So basically, here's what we have in the Old Testament. You can divorce your wife for some indecency, but you have to give her a certificate of divorce so she can get remarried. Divorce always allows the potential of remarriage. That's the idea. Biblical divorce allows the potential for biblical remarriage. Why does Jesus say that if you divorce your spouse for any reason except for sexual immorality, that it causes her to become an adulteress? Why would my divorcing my wife cause her to become an adulteress? Because the idea is that she's going to get remarried. Okay, she's going to get remarried, especially in a culture where women couldn't really work uh, and needed the, uh, the protection and the provision of her husband. Now, here's my question for you. What does some indecency mean here in Deuteronomy? What does some indecency mean? Well, there's two hot topics going on in the time of the New Testament, okay, by two different rabbis. The first rabbi is a guy named Hillel. 
By the way, uh, the guy that comes kind of from the school or got to study kind of in the lineage of Hillel is a guy named Gamaliel. You might have heard of him in the book of Acts. A guy that studied with Gamaliel is the apostle Paul, okay? So there's a rabbi named Hillel, and uh, Hillel says some indecency can refer to any way that your wife displeases you, okay? She burns the biscuits too many times, divorce. That's Hillel, okay? Shammai says, no, Hillel, you're off your rocker. Some indecency means some sort of sexual indecency. She's cheated on you. She's been unfaithful, etc. okay? Which one of those two rabbis is Jesus closer to? Do I understand the two positions? Hillel is that you can divorce for non-sexual reasons. Shammai is you can only divorce if your spouse somehow cheats or does something sexually inappropriate, okay? Which one is Jesus closer to? Closer to Shammai. Well, we'll look at what Jesus says in a second. It's not as clear as you might think that it is. Now, here's what's interesting. Who, in the Old Testament, right? Jesus is, is reinterpreting. In the Old Testament, I actually think Hillel is closer to the correct interpretation. Here's why. I don't think you can divorce your wife for burning the biscuits, by the way. Let me clarify. What happens if your spouse commits adultery on you in the Old Testament? The death penalty. The death, Deuteronomy 24 or whatever we're at, Deuteronomy, yeah, 24 can't be talking about if they commit adultery in some indecency because the command there is not that you give her a certificate of divorce. The command there is that she gets killed. The command there is the death penalty. So I do think he's talking about issues that are not sexually related. Right? I do think he's talking about issues that are not sexually related. Now, Jesus is going to say, this only ever came because of your hardness of hearts anyway. That's not God's ideal or God's best. But that's the context for the Old Testament. Everybody with me so far? I know this is a lot. I know this is very technical because this is a very debated issue in church history. So with that in mind, now let's look at what Jesus has to say. So here's what we've got. Frivolous divorce, always bad. Adultery, always bad. There's an allowance in the Old Testament where you can divorce your spouse, but you have to give them a certificate of divorce, which probably doesn't have to do with adultery, or else they would have been stoned, but instead just allows them to get remarried. That's where we're at so far, okay? That's where we're at so far. Now let's move into the New Testament. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Jesus takes a much more rigid position than was allowed in the Old Testament because Jesus is bringing in new wine that doesn't fit with old wineskins. Jesus is not making up new interpretations of the law. What Jesus does in his ministry is he's telling you God's intent all along. He's giving you the correct interpretation of the law. He's trying to say, yes, God allowed this, and the reason he allowed it is so you'd give a certificate of divorce so that poor woman would be taken care of, but that's not his best. That's not God's best, okay? Here's what Jesus says. We're going to look at what he says in Mark, Luke, and then Matthew, because Matthew says something that Mark and Luke doesn't say, okay? Let's look at Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. The crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They're quoting Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. By the way, that's also an implicit condemnation of polygamy. To marry another is to commit adultery. Commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, okay? So what Jesus is saying is, yes, I realize that there's a command in the Old Testament to protect this wife by giving her a certificate of divorce, but that's not God's best. 
God's original intent was there to be one man and one woman in a lifelong partnership, and you don't get to tear apart what God has, has joined, okay? So notice that Jesus is critiquing their frivolous allowances for divorce. He's not supporting that, okay? Does Jesus give any exceptions to this in Mark? Does he give any exceptions where you can't get divorced except in this case? He does not in Mark, okay? Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus so sees marriage as this lifelong binding union that to be with somebody else in his mind is always committing adultery. That's Luke 16, 18. Okay? So both Mark and Luke have Jesus saying this. If you get divorced for any reason and marry someone else, you've committed adultery. That's what Mark and Luke say. Now, in Matthew, there's a very famous phrase, what's called the Matthaean exception. And here's what it is. Look at these passages in Matthew. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Why does it make her commit adultery? Because the assumption is she's going to get remarried. Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, here's another one. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay? So here's what we have so far. Okay? We understand the Old Testament. There's this allowance for divorce. In the New Testament, as New Testament believers, is there an allowance for divorce? Here's where it's tricky. Mark and Luke just say that if you divorce your spouse and get remarried, you've committed adultery. Matthew adds this phrase that if you divorce them for any reason except for sexual immorality, then it's adultery, okay? So here is a big debate on this issue. Why does Matthew include except for sexual immorality and Mark and Luke not include that, okay? There's two main theories. One theory says that Jesus is not actually talking about marital adultery. We're going to talk about that later, okay? What they're going to say is that the reason Mark and Luke don't include it is because what Jesus is talking about in Matthew is the same thing as Mark and Luke. What they'll say is that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what Jesus is saying is you cannot divorce your spouse and get remarried or that's adultery, okay? That's what he's saying. Uh, and this phrase for sexual morality is not talking about something in marriage. It's talking about something else. We'll talk about that towards the end, okay? That's one view. The other view is that Luke and Mark assume what Matthew says, okay? That's the other view, that Mark and Luke assume what Matthew says, okay? So when Jesus says, you cannot get remarried or else you've committed adultery, what they're saying is, in Matthew, it's explicit that he means, obviously, though, in the case where there'd be adultery, where there's a new one flesh union and you've broken the covenant, obviously, then you can get remarried. And Mark and Luke just assume that. You don't have to say it because it's so assumed, we, we used this when we talked about how to interpret the Bible. Do I need a command that says, don't go up to a woman on the street and punch her in the neck? The Bible never says, don't go up to a woman on the street and don't punch her in the neck. Thou shalt not go up to a woman on the street and punch her in the neck. How do I know that that's wrong? It's assumed by other texts, right? By other texts about loving your neighbor and these kind of things, 
right? So what, what, what some people will say is that uh, the allowance for divorce in the case of adultery or sexual immorality or something like that uh, is assumed. Let me give you two quotes by uh, biblical scholars on this. The first is a guy named William Loder. I'm not sure he's even a believer, but he is like the world's foremost expert on sexuality. He's written something like nine volumes on the Bible and sexuality. Sexuality in the Apocrypha, sexuality in Philo and Josephus, sexuality in the Old Testament, sexuality in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He is like the first century Jewish expert on sexuality. Here's what he says. This coheres with the belief that sexual intercourse establishes a permanent bond. The implications are then that marriage is permanent, divorce forbidden, and conversely, adultery severs one permanent relationship by creating another and so mandates divorce. As the Matthaean sayings make explicit, but the other sayings almost certainly imply. Or Andreas Kostenberger, a New Testament scholar. The broad, okay, so, so here's the question. Anyway, let me just read this. We'll talk about this later. The broad expression, some indecency, in Deuteronomy 24, 1, likely led to the use of a similar broad term in Matthew 19, 9. All right, why does Jesus say sexual morality, which is a broad term? Because he's using broad terms because Deuteronomy uses broad terms. Rather than concluding that Jesus did not allow for any divorce in sexually consummated marriages, it is much more likely that he did not elaborate on points at which he agreed with the commonly held view of his day. Okay? If that's confusing to you, I've created a helpful summary statement. Here's where we are thus far in this very difficult debated topic. Conclusion thus far, the only time that divorce is allowed by Jesus is due to sexual immorality, and even the definition of sexual immorality is debated, okay? We will look at that later. It's pretty tight so far. It's pretty tight so far. Would you agree? If you're wondering, if you're saying, wait a second, Zach, if the only time I can get divorced is for sexual immorality, and even that's a maybe, that's really difficult. Yes, it is. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, sometimes it's better not to get married, right? It's tough. It's tough. Okay. Everybody with me so far? This is a lot of information. I realize this is technical. But again, as I've said before, at Parkway, we give you everything you need and even some stuff you don't. We don't ever give you less than you need, but sometimes we give you more than you need. Okay? Now let's look at Paul. Okay? So, so far, basically all we're saying is the only allowance for divorce biblically thus far we've looked at is for sexual morality, and even the, the definition of that is debated. We'll talk about that at the end, what the two views on that are. Okay? Now let's talk about Paul's teaching on divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 18. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should re uh, remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife, okay? Let, let, I've got a few things I want you to see in this passage. <clears throat> Number one, when Paul says, I say this, not the Lord, okay? That doesn't mean what he's about to say is just his opinion. That doesn't mean that that's not Scripture. I've heard people say that. They'll say, well, that's not God's command. That's just Paul's command. He says that. Everything in Scripture is God's command. The black words and the red words are the same, okay? When Paul speaks, Jesus speaks, when he says, I say this, not the Lord, he's not saying, oh, let me just give you my opinion on this hot topic. What he's saying is, is that I can't turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and tell you what Jesus wrote on this because he didn't talk about this. 
What he's saying is that in Jesus' ministry, when he talks about divorce, he doesn't deal with the issue of what happens when you're married to an unbelieving spouse. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus didn't talk about this, but as an apostle, I'm now giving you binding words from God. That's all he means. So don't think that when he says that he's saying it, he's just giving his opinion. All he's trying to say is Jesus didn't deal with this, so I'm now dealing with it. Again, I can't flip open to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and point to what Jesus said in marrying a non-believer, okay, in marrying a non-believer. That's the first thing to note. Number two, if you get divorced, presumably for reasons other than sexual immorality or abandonment, you cannot get remarried. To say it another way, a biblical divorce permits a biblical remarriage, but an unbiblical divorce does not permit remarriage, okay? So within a Protestant system, I think this is important, biblical divorce allows for remarriage, Unbiblical divorce does not allow for remarriage, okay? So remarriage and divorce always go together in Protestant thinking, all right, in Protestant thinking. Number three, can you divorce your spouse because they are an unbeliever? No, okay? That's explicitly what's being dealt with here. I've heard people say that. My husband's not a believer. He's not acting like a Christian. He's not walking in a holy way. Therefore, I need to divorce him. Paul deals with that explicitly and says, when you're married to an unbeliever, you stay married to them. Why? Because that's a chance for your spouse to be saved. They're around the preaching of the gospel. They're around, there's a Christian influence in their home. All right? That's what he means by being holy, made holy by their spouse. Okay? So, does this mean that you cannot... So, so, I've heard people say, I know that this isn't grounds for divorce, but my situation's really toxic. Or my situation is bad emotionally. Or my spouse has emotionally abandoned me. Or my spouse has, uh, you know, uh, spiritually abandoned me. Of course they have. They're a non-believer. A non-believer is not going to be there for you spiritually and emotionally like they should be. And Paul still says to stay married, okay? Number four, if your lost spouse divorces or physically abandons you, are you bound to that marriage? You're not, okay? Paul's not saying you can leave them. They're saying if he's saying if they leave you, you're not bound to that, okay? So let me, let me just be really clear. What was the one exception that Jesus allowed divorce for? Sexual immorality, okay? Paul here is not adding an extra exception. He's not saying, Jesus said everything except for sexual immorality, and now I'm adding a second thing. Paul is not talking about grounds for you to get divorced. He's talking about what happens if your spouse leaves you. He's saying if your spouse divorces you, or your spouse abandons you, or your spouse leaves you, or your spouse says they're going to the store and doesn't come back for 30 years, in that case, you're not bound. What else can you do? That's not your fault. You're called to live at peace. So Paul here is not giving an extra allowance for divorce, the allowance for divorce that Jesus gives is sexual immorality. What Paul is doing is he's saying, what do you do if your spouse leaves you? And what he's saying is that's not your fault. You're not bound by that. You're not enslaved is the word he uses for that, okay? Also, you need to know in this passage, this is really, really important. In context, Paul means physical abandonment, okay? Not some type of emotional, spiritual, psychological, allegorical, metaphorical, or any other modern made-up form of abandonment. It's really important that you don't twist the Bible's words to try to find a way out of your marriage that the Bible doesn't actually give and then act like you're interpreting the Bible because you misinterpreted the words. That's evil, okay? You have to be careful. Let, let, let's say this. Let's say uh, it was against the law to murder. That is against the law, by the way, in case you were wondering. And all of a sudden, you turned in your spouse and you said, you need to lock him up. He's committed murder. And they're like, oh, where's the dead body? And you say, well, no, he's, he's emotionally murdered me. Now, I don't want to make light of the fact that people can be emotionally abusive and these kind of things, but what you've done is you've taken this really strong term murder and you've twisted it to mean something that it's not meaning. When Paul here is talking about your spouse abandoning you, the way that the Protestant reformers define that was desertion, which is a great word to use. It's that they've actually physically left. They divorce you, they leave, you're not living in the same house, they're gone. 
It's not that you're in the same house, but you just are fighting. That's called marriage. Okay? So it's important, not that I minimize the fact that some marriages are severely unhealthy. Some marriages are severely unhealthy, and we are here to help. We do counseling. We have a family minister. We, we love counselors. We love, we love psychologists that are biblical. We're in on all that. I'm not trying to minimize that issue in your home, but you need to be clear, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not Sigmund Freud. Paul is talking about actual physical abandonment. Okay? That's important. You need to keep that in mind here. Conclusion thus far. So now looking at Jesus and Paul, what is our conclusion? You cannot get divorced, i.e. or remarried, because those go together, unless you are physically cheated on or are physically abandoned. Okay? Or are physically abandoned. That's the historic Protestant position. Now, what about cases of physical abuse? Who has that question? Who's thinking, what happens if you're in an abusive marriage? Okay? Here's what we do in the case of abuse. Okay, this is really important. And we've done this in the past uh, in different contexts where I've been in ministry. If there is a couple and one of the, the spouses is being beaten by the other spouse, typically the guy is beating the girl. There have been cases I've dealt with where it's the other way around. Okay, so that does happen. What we do is we separate them physically, including getting the law involved if we need to. Okay? The first thing we do is we separate them physically so that somebody is not getting hurt. We're for that. But that is not grounds for divorce. The problem is not your marriage, it's the abuse. So what you need to get rid of is not your marriage, but the abuse. So what we do in these cases where there's actual abuse is we physically separate that couple. If we've got to get attorneys involved, if we've got to get the law, law enforcement involved, we'll do that so that they're not getting hurt. And then while they're separate and nobody's getting hurt, we'll minister to them separately. We'll have women minister to this lady, we'll have some men minister to this guy, and then one of three things will happen. They will either reconcile, and we've seen that, where people get saved. A guy's beating his wife, they get separated, he hears the gospel, he starts getting counseling, he comes to be a believer, and then they're able to come back together again. That's the best. That's option one. Or, while they're separated, one of them will leave, that's abandonment, or one of them will cheat. And so by separating them physically in the case of abuse, it forces one of the three things that the Bible actually addresses to happen. They either reconcile and come back together, one of them leaves, then you know what to do biblically, or one of them cheats, and you know what to do biblically. And so uh, uh, abuse is not a grounds for divorce, but it is grounds for getting you away from the abuse, okay? So we're not saying, a lot of times when we say that abuse isn't grounds for divorce, people think, oh, you're just going to let some woman be in there and just keep being beaten. No. Why do you equate abuse with marriage? Those are not the same thing. So we physically separate them, minister to each separately until they're healthy enough to come back together again, or during that process, one of them will leave or one of them will cheat, and then we clearly know what to do biblically. So what it does is it adds an extra step in there to actually tell us what God would have us do in the Bible in that circumstance. Does that make sense? Okay. I also don't want to make light of this issue. So if you are in some type of relationship right now that is physically abusive or even emotionally abusive, I'd like to, I'd like to know that too, please let the leaders of the church know so we can minister to you guys. That is not mean or evil. That's not disrespectful to your spouse. That is a way to honor your spouse by getting help for your marriage, okay? Other things to consider before we get into another thing. Let me mention some other things on divorce and remarriage. Is committing adultery, quote, in your heart grounds for divorce? Yes or no? No. Why? Same reason that murdering me emotionally is not murdering me, okay? Now, what does Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You need to keep, okay, let me, let me say it uh, in the most Kim Kardashian way I can. <clears throat> Context is like totally super important, okay? 
In one context, when Jesus is saying that you can get divorced for cases of sexual immorality, he's talking about actual physical sexual immorality. He's talking about where a new one flesh union has taken place. When he's talking about, what he's talking about here is he's addressing the heart of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying, I don't commit adultery. And Jesus is saying, but your heart still doesn't love God because you commit adultery in your heart. You didn't physically touch a woman, but you wanted to. I didn't actually physically murder somebody. He's saying, but in your heart, you hated your brother. And so you actually did want to murder them. So we have to be careful that we don't twist what Jesus is saying. In one context, he's actually talking about divorce. In the other context, he's trying to deal with the heart, okay? Would you lock somebody up in prison because they had hatred in their heart towards somebody? Why not? Jesus says that if you have hate in your heart, you've committed murder because he's talking about something different. You got, you got me? If you want to say that uh, committing adultery in your heart or lust is grounds for divorce, then everyone has grounds for divorce. This wouldn't just include things like pornography. This would just include like going to the beach, This would include checking out a woman or a guy at Starbucks or something like this. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's really important that you keep in mind the context of what Jesus is saying. In one context, he's saying, don't get divorced except in these cases. In another context, he's saying, God's after the heart. God's after the heart, okay? So keep that in mind. We don't want to say this person has grounds for divorce because their person has committed uh, uh, emotional adultery or something like that. Now, listen, when you lust after somebody who's not your spouse or you have some type of emotional affair, you have violated the covenant, but you've not broken the covenant, okay? You violated the covenant, but you break the covenant when you actually have sexual unification with somebody else. Number two, does the Bible mandate divorce in the case of adultery? It does not, okay? It allows it, possibly if you take the interpretation that I take, it allows it, but it does not mandate it. That's interesting. In the Old Testament, if your spouse cheats, it's mandated that they get killed, In the New Testament, Jesus is giving this allowance, but it's not something you have to pursue. In fact, every time I've had to deal with, in my ministerial career, dealing with a couple where there has been adultery, I don't think that I've ever recommended divorce. I just sit down with them and say, let's figure out how Christ can heal your marriage. Do you know why? This is important. If you take nothing else away from today, take this away. I cheat on Jesus every day, and he stays married to me. All right? So just because this text might allow it, that doesn't mean you have to take that route. All right? No matter what you've gone through, there's possible healing in the gospel for your marriage. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Number three, does the adultery have to be continual? The text does not say that it has to be continual. I've heard people say, well, you can get divorced in the cases of a continual adultery. You've added a word in there Jesus doesn't add. He just says sexual immorality. Now, I get why they say that. What they're trying to say is if your spouse cheats on you, forgive them and try to stay married. And if they keep doing it, I get it. Okay? I get what they're trying to say, but the text itself doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it has to be continual. Number four, if you got remarried unbiblically, you are now called to stay in that marriage, exclamation point. You are not continually sinning by staying married to your new spouse. So let's say when you were younger, let's say you're 19 or something, and you get divorced from your spouse just for irreconcilable differences, not adultery or abandonment, but you guys are just fighting all the time, so you get divorced and you get remarried. Jesus is going to say that when you got remarried, that was sin, but... Repent of that sin and now move on. Stay married with the person that you're married to. You're not continually sinning by staying married with them. The original marriage was sin, but now that you're married, be faithful. Walk out the gospel in that new marriage. The only reason I say that is there are people that have gotten divorced for unbiblical reasons and then got remarried, and they're wondering, do I need to stay with my spouse? Yes, you need to stay with your spouse. Do not add more divorce to a divorce, okay? All right. Number five, can a divorced person be an elder? Can a divorced person be an elder? Why do I mention this? Because in, uh, where, where we're given qualifications for elders, for example, like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and these kind of things, it will say that an elder must be, quote, 
a one-woman man is what it says, uh, or the husband of one wife. Um, I would say, and this is my view, uh, I think, Jeff, this is probably your view and, and maybe some others as well, that's not talking about if you've ever been divorced. That's not Paul's point. point. Well, I don't know what word that is, point. That's not Paul's point. <clears throat> I have a cold. Uh, that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is not saying if any of these things have ever been true about you. He's not saying if you've ever been a drunkard, you can't be an elder. If you've ever been a fighter, you can't be an elder. If you've ever had a bad reputation, if you've ever been divorced, that's not what he's saying. He's trying to give qualifications for a godly man now. By the way, those qualifications are not just for elders, they're for Christians. And the reason you can't be an elder if you don't meet those qualifications is because you're not being a faithful Christian. So it's not as though that an elder can't be a drunkard, but you can be, or something like that. And when he says that there's, uh, they must be the husband of one wife, I think the idea is at a time, right? They're not a polygamist or something like this. So I do not think that if somebody had gotten divorced uh, and, you know, maybe their spouse just left them or whatever, that they can't be an elder. Now, maybe if they've gone through 20 divorces, we would say that you couldn't be an elder, not because of the divorce thing, but because you don't have a good reputation among outsiders, which is one of the qualifications. But I don't think personally that's what Paul… I think if Paul was trying to say an elder can be someone who's never been divorced, he could have said that much clearer. By him saying they must be the husband of one wife, he's saying if they're married, they don't have to be, you can have a single elder, if they're married, they only need to have one, okay? Number six, is annulment a thing biblically? Is annulment a thing? What is annulment, okay? The way the state would define annulment is a faultless divorce, but I don't care the way the state defines it. I want to know, is this a biblical concept of annulment? If you have married somebody and there's been covenant, and then there's been consummation, and that's an actual marriage. You're not brother and sister or something like that that's, that should not be married. There is no annulment, right? There is only divorce, right? There's only divorce. There is no annulment. Annulment is when a marriage hasn't actually taken place. And annulment's when a marriage hasn't actually taken place. Let me give you a few examples of this. Let's say you, get, you go through a wedding ceremony, but the wedding is never consummated, all right? There's never any type of sexual union, in that case, you could get an annulment because there's been no marriage, right? Marriage is covenant and consummation. Or let's say that you got married, and then all of a sudden, you know, three weeks later, the state comes back and they said, we didn't notice, this is your sister. This is not a, this is not a legitimate marriage. That would be an annulment, okay? Uh, a gay marriage would be an annulment because no marriage has actually happened, right? There is no such thing as gay marriage. That's not a biblical idea, Okay? So annulment is only when there's no, oh, let's say you married somebody else. Oh, man, I'll tell you this crazy story. Do we have time? Yes. One time I was at this church, and we were working with this ministry, and they did this apartment ministry. And we're like, man, these, this couple seems super solid. They seem to love each other. They have kids. They're doing this apartment ministry. It's awesome. And we later found out that that guy had another family back in Mexico that was his first family, and he had married this other girl and not told anybody. That would be an annulment, not a divorce, because he's already married and he's just been cheating. Needless to say, we stopped working with that ministry. Okay, uh, So, annulment is when there's no actual marriage, but once there's marriage, okay, then there's only divorce if there's a separation. Then there's only divorce. There's also keeping the marriage together. I'm not saying these are your only options. I'm just meaning uh, 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 you know, when there's annulment and divorce of those two. Uh, so, keep that in mind. The only reason I say that is that there are Christians that I even know of who uh, basically thought it was okay to get divorced because the judge called it an annulment. Okay? And I'm like, wait a second, are you brother and sister? No. Did you consummate your marriage? Yeah, okay, then there's no annulment. This is actual divorce. Number seven, can you get remarried to your spouse after divorce? Yes, Paul says that if you get divorced, to let them remain single or else be reconciled, okay? But only assuming that you haven't married someone else in the meantime. 
okay? You can only go back to your most recent spouse. Here's what I mean. Another issue that I've had to deal with. There was a couple. They got divorced. The girl married another guy, okay? Then all of a sudden, they're having trouble in their marriage, and she wants to go back to her first husband. We say, no. And he said, you're telling me I can have any other girl in the world. I can get married to anyone else except my wife. We said, no, you can get married to anybody else except for someone else's wife. And right now, she belongs to somebody else, okay? So again, all I'm trying to say in this is you go back to your most recent spouse. It's not righteous or godly to break up your second marriage to go back to your first husband. If you haven't gotten married yet, yes, please reconcile. Please go back to your spouse. Please, please go back to your spouse. Are you guys, is everybody okay? Let me again mention grace and the importance of the gospel. If you have committed some sort of sin in your marriage, if you have been divorced, there's mercy for you at the cross. What we're going to do when we read the Bible, the Bible will often offend you before it transforms you. It will tell you what God says, which hurts because we're sinners, and then it will heal you with the gospel. So if you've gone through these things, don't sit in your shame. Sit in grace, right? Sit in grace. So I say everything that I've said on a very difficult issue simply to say this. I think that the only two allowances for divorce are actual physical adultery and actual physical abandonment, and I think that those would allow you to get remarried. I think anything else is sin. But there's another position that's even a bit more restrictive. Let me tell you what this position is, okay? Okay, uh, let's go over some Greek. Is that, that's what you want. After a long lesson, you're like, oh, I'm so tired. Please give me weird letters and stuff that look like X's and R's. Okay, when Jesus says that you cannot uh, get divorced for any case except for sexual immorality, he uses this word. This is the word porneia. I wrote it in both Greek and English so you can see it. Porneia. Porneia means sexual immorality. Okay, that's what porneia means. What word does that sound like? Yeah, pornography. It's where we get the pornography. A pornos is a prostitute in Greek. Uh, porneia means sexual immorality. Now, here's another word. This is important. This is the word moikeia. All right? Moikeia means adultery. Okay? Which one does Jesus use in both cases in Matthew when he says that unless you get divorced except for, what does he use? He only uses porneia. Okay, he doesn't use moikeia. He uses porneia. Both cases, it's sexual immorality. Okay? Now, there's a lot of debate on this. Why does Jesus use this term? Okay? I think he uses this term because porneia is a junk drawer term for any sexual sin. So if I say that there were two men together and they committed porneia, that's homosexuality. Okay? If I say that uh, there were two single people together that weren't married and they committed porneia, that's premarital sex. If I say that someone is married and they commit porneia, that's adultery, okay? Oftentimes, this term porneia is used for adultery. It's used, for example, in Jeremiah 3, 8 through 9. It's used in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It's used in other Jewish literature in Sirach 23, 23, Susanna 64, Testament of Reuben 4, 8, Testament of Joseph 3, 8, and others. So it's common practice in Judaism to use porneia to talk about adultery. So think of porneia as an umbrella, and every sexual sin fits under that umbrella. Adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, etc., whatever it would be. You with me so far? So what I think Jesus is talking about in Matthew when he says that if you get divorced for any case except for sexual morality, I think he's meaning adultery. I think that that's a common way to say it. I think that that's the way the Pharisees would have understood it. Uh, that's what I think he's talking about. Why does he use this generic term? Because a generic term is used in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 24, you get rid of your wife for some indecency, which is a broad term, which is why he's defining that some indecency as sexual immorality, okay? That's what I think is going on. But there's another view. There's another evangelical view, 
And it's not dumb. It's a very smart view. Guys like John Piper hold this view. And what they would say is that if Jesus was meaning to talk about adultery, he would have just said adultery. He would have said moikeia if he was trying to talk about adultery. Why does he say porneia? Why does he say sexual morality? And what they will say is, is uh, here's what's going on. In Judaism, you would often get married contractually before you went and consummated your marriage. Okay? Think, to, think, think back to Mary and Joseph. Have you ever wondered how, how come Joseph has to divorce Mary? They're married, yet at the same time, they haven't come together. They haven't consummated the marriage. They're betrothed. They're in this betrothal period. A lot of times what you would do in the first century is you would have this contractual marriage, and you would wait a season to make sure that everything's in order, to make sure your finances in order, to make sure your spouse hadn't cheated and they weren't pregnant, etc. And then you would come together to consummate the marriage. But it was still a binding betrothal. It's kind of like an engagement with legal terms, okay? And so what some people will say is that the reason that Jesus is not using adultery, the reason he's not saying that in case you get uh, divorced in the case of adultery, is he's not talking about a marriage at all. He's not talking about a fully consummated, fully married couple. What he's talking about is a couple in the betrothal period. They'll say that's why he doesn't say adultery. They'll also say that's why Mark and Luke don't include it. In Mark and Luke, there is no exception for divorce. And so in Matthew, there's also no exception for divorce because Jesus isn't talking about adultery within a full marriage. He's talking about sexual impropriety in the betrothal period. He's talking about sexual immorality in the betrothal period. That's another view. Okay? That's another view. So we're going to leave a lot of time for questions. Jeffrey, make your way up here and let me read you the final conclusion. Final conclusion, divorce and remarriage, sticky topic. We would advise you to hold one of two positions. We're very diverse here at Parkway. You can hold one of these two very restrictive positions, okay? (laughs) We would advise that you hold one of two positions. First, you can hold that the Bible allows for divorce and remarriage if your spouse physically cheats or physically abandons slash divorces you. Second, you can hold that the Bible allows for divorce and remarriage if your spouse physically abandons or divorces you, but that's it. So some people will say there are two grounds for divorce, adultery and abandonment. Others will say there's one ground for divorce, abandonment. That's it. Those are your two positions, okay? Uh, Most of, if not all of our elders would land probably somewhere between those two spectrums. But here's what's clear. We don't allow it for the case of a bunch of fighting or toxicity or spiritual adultery or anything like that. We hold it for these two cases or this one case, and that's pretty much it. So, Jeffrey, come up here with your smart thoughts.